And the text says he arose and followed him. Now I want to talk for a minute or two about the reputation of a tax collector. Tax collectors were not well liked in the first century. Matthew, of course, Matthew, Levi, that was his occupation. And they were perceived by many in that day and time as being dirty. They were shrewd. Some would say underhanded, detested by the people without question. And often in Scripture, they were lumped together. You'll read about tax collectors and sinners and harlots as if they're all one. You remember in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable. He did this because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And Luke said, they despised others. So he talked about a Pharisee and a publican. The Pharisees, they were the religious upper crust in that day. And they thought they were something. And they were big on the externals of the law. Jesus delivered a series of woes to them in Matthew chapter 23. So Jesus, in his narration of this parable, said, Two men went up to the temple to pray the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you can, just imagine the, you can just imagine the Pharisee as Jesus recounts this story. The Pharisee prays. And he said, I thank you, God, that I'm not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he says this. Or, even as this tax collector, I fast twice in the week, give tithes of all that I possess. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the tax collector who would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus told that parable, and I really believe it was directed to some of the religious leaders, the Jews in that day. They viewed themselves as the righteous, and they trusted in themselves. And so the arrogance, the hypocrisy, they thought they were better than other people. And so for a tax collector to be seen by Jesus and then to be called by Jesus, are you kidding So you think about the reputation of a tax collector, but then note, if you would, the invitation. The text tells us that Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Now I think there are a couple of thoughts here that are worthy of consideration. Number one, what was it Jesus saw? You know, we talk about the various professions that people engage in. And sometimes we see a person, we see them as a banker, an attorney, maybe a physician, a teacher, a counselor. We see people and we think of certain things, maybe their occupation and various other things that accompany that. Jesus saw Matthew as a valuable soul. And when it's all said and done, Behind the face is a 
human soul, an eternal soul. And you know, Paul said that God spared not His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. What does that say about the value of the human soul? You remember in Luke chapter 15, in Luke 15, the Bible says that sinners and tax collectors drew near to Jesus to hear Him. And according to Luke, the scribes and the Pharisees began to murmur. You can just hear the chatter. And they said, this man receives sinners. So Jesus told a series of parables, three. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost soul. What do you think the emphasis of Luke 15 is all about? The value of the human soul. You are valuable to God. And what God is saying is, you are so valuable to me that you can become redeemed, cleansed, reconciled. You are worth something. There are a lot of folks in our world today in all reality, they feel as if they are worth little or nothing. They have low self-esteem. They have this idea that they're a nobody. Well, the Bible says that we're all valuable in the eyes of God. Matthew was a valuable soul, and not just a valuable soul, but Jesus saw him as a valuable servant. Now just think about this for a minute. God sees us as we are, doesn't He? He sees us for who we are. But maybe more importantly, God sees what we can become. Now you think about that for a minute. Matthew was a tax collector. He was perceived by many as dirty, underhanded, shrewd, lumped in with the sinners, detested by people. And yet Jesus could look at Matthew and say, you know what, I can use him. God has the ability to use all of us if we're willing. If we're willing to become one of his servants. Saul of Tarsus, great example. You look at Saul and the venom that he sprayed toward the church in the first century, the fact that he was a terrorist, made havoc of the church, according to Luke. And yet, God said, when He called a man by the name of Ananias to go to him, God said, look, he is a chosen vessel of mine. We are valuable souls. Yes. Listen to what Jesus said, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, inherent in the world is you and me. God so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have the opportunity to be somebody in the eyes of God or in the kingdom of God, I should say. We can become a valuable servant for the kingdom. So, we talk about the invitation. Jesus saw something in Matthew. Saw him as a valuable soul. Saw him as potentially a valuable servant. And I would add this. God can use you. 
God can take you where you are in this life and He can make something out of you. You remember in Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul said that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are His workmanship. And the idea is we are God's masterpiece. And God's saying, look at what I have done. Look at what I've done for this person. This is my prize. This is my treasure. That's how God views us. Something worthwhile. Now, there's a second thought. First, we talk about the call by Jesus, but then, secondly, the criticism of Jesus. There was a lot of criticism on this occasion because Jesus is identifying with those on the other side of town, that is, the bad folks. So what about this criticism? First, they criticized those who were associating with Jesus. And who were they? The sinful? The shameful? And yet when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the people that Jesus associated with, what kind of people did He associate with time and again? Wasn't He associating with the sinful and those who were living lives of shame? I mean, here's Matthew. And the text says that Jesus is now in the house, sitting at a table. And you've got all these people flooding the house. And they're sitting down with the Lord and with His disciples. And then the disciples, they have to respond to the critics. Well, why does your teacher... Why would he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, why would he want to associate with these folks? Remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus met a woman at Jacob's well? And Jesus engaged in dialogue with that lady. And during the course of their conversation, he talked about living water. The fact that he had something to offer her, eternal life. He said, go call your husband. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you know, you've answered correctly. You've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. Who would have thought that a woman who had been married five times, now living with a guy, who would have thought that she would have become a disciple of Jesus and not just a disciple, but a valuable servant? Again, that's what Jesus specializes in. He has the ability to offer us a better life. He offers that to all people. So they're critical of Jesus. And yet, you remember what the angel said to Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1? Jesus came to do what? To save His people from sin. Tax collectors and sinners and harlots, why do you think they were attracted to Jesus? Because they saw something in Him. They saw His compassion, love, mercy. 
It's kindness. They saw somebody that could make a difference in their life. And let me tell you what, he can make a difference in your life. Now they criticized those who were associating with Jesus. But then they attacked, in essence, Jesus. Because they wanted to know, why would your teacher, why would he associate with the lower rung of humanity? I mean, why would he want to be around these folks? You remember in Luke 7, there's an account of Jesus in the home of Simon. And a woman comes to anoint Jesus. And she's anointing him. And Simon, he begins to think. Now, you know, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is, that she's a sinner. In other words, why would the Lord, why would he allow somebody like that to pay homage to him? I'll tell you why, because he came to make a difference in people's lives. He came to redeem the human family. And so their attack really was on the character of Jesus, the very Son of God, the one who came with a heaven-sent mission. Jesus said the Son of Man's not come to be ministered unto, but to minister to give His life a ransom for the many. Jesus came to redeem the human family. So they attacked the character of Jesus and then they attacked the company of Jesus. They're lamb-blasting Him. Now you remember, we noted just a moment ago, Luke 18, the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And there were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then listened and they despised others. I can just imagine these folks looking down their nose at all these sinners that have come around to be with Jesus. Doesn't say a lot about them. Doesn't say a lot about their compassion and care and concern for other people. And yet Jesus is receptive to sinners. Well, why is that? Because that's who He came to save. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So you got the critics. But then there's what I would call the counter. The Lord Jesus counters what they have to say. There is critics. And they've criticized His character, His company. But now he's going to counter. So listen now to what the text says. Note with me if you would. In verse 12, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. All right? First of all, Jesus is going to clarify. There's some clarification here about his work. Number one, you've got to understand, Jesus came, He came to people who were hurting. And not just hurting, but He came to help people. Well, help them how? 
help them with their sin. I said just a minute ago, Jesus has the ability to make a difference in your life. He can give you a better life. And you say, well, how so? Prove it. Show me how Jesus can give me a better life, all right? Number one, the Lord Jesus has the ability to revive a broken life. A life that has been broken by sin. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 85 said, Revive us again, O Lord, that our hearts may rejoice in you. Psalm 85, at about verse 6. There's a song that we sing, and one of the stanzas says, Chords that were broken will vibrate once more. The Lord Jesus Christ has the ability to revive a broken life, a life broken by sin and unrighteousness. Not only can He revive, but He can restore a broken life. Do you believe that? The Lord Jesus has the ability to take a life that has been fractured by sin, completely broken, marred in sin, and He can bring about restoration. David in Psalm 51, David, of course, had fallen. And David talked about his sin before Almighty God. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness. But in verse 12, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The Lord Jesus specializes in restoration projects. You ever seen an old car? Sometimes I see old cars on the backs of trucks. And many times those cars are rusted out. A lot of years and a lot of mileage on them. Somebody is taking that car back to their shop, and what are they going to do? They're going to restore it to its pristine beauty. Well, Jesus can restore your life. Not only can He restore your life, a broken life, but He can renew a broken life. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, you remember in chapter 5, in verse 17, Paul said, If any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What are you saying, Lord? He's saying that I can renew a broken life. Here's somebody who's been broken by the shackles of sin. Their life is upside down, out of line, out of kilter. And Paul is saying, let me tell you what, the new birth will afford you a new beginning. And with that new beginning, you will have new blessings. Now you tell me the Lord doesn't have the ability to renew a broken life. Yes, He does. Look at Matthew. Here's a tax collector and all these other people identified as sinners. They're coming to Jesus. Why? Don't you think they understand something about the Lord, about His mission, about His purpose? But then there's another thing. The Lord Jesus can rebrand a broken life. Matthew was what? He was a tax collector, identified as a sinner. Nick Saban, love him or hate him. I can tell you one thing, the guy knows how to coach. The guy's a winner. And let me tell you this. 
He specializes in rebranding people that have been thrown to the curb. Read his resume. How many coaches has he taken? They have been kicked to the curb. They've got a problem. And so he'll take them in. He'll work with them. He will rebrand them. And then what? They're back out coaching again. That's what he specializes in. So you think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He can take somebody who is a sinner and make them a saint. Saul of Tarsus. When you think of Saul of Tarsus, what do you think of? First thing that comes to mind. I know he was a terrorist. I know he was a persecutor. I know that he was a blasphemer. That he threw his weight around. That he did everything within his power to destroy the church of Almighty God. But God said, I want you to know something. He is a chosen vessel of mine. And so God took this man that was a terrorist to the church of Christ, converted him. Ananias said, Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. And then he rebranded him. He made him over. So you've got Saul of Tarsus on the one hand, and now you've got the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, the gospel preacher, the inspired writer, who's doing all these great things. As we say sometimes, enough said. That's what Jesus did in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Paul, the great preacher of the gospel, he can rebrand you. You might feel like you are the scum of the earth. But Jesus can take you. He can remake you. He can rebrand you. And now it's no longer a sinner, but it is saint. And by the way, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he wrote to the church of God, to those who had been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And let me tell you what. You go over chapter 6 and you read about the Corinthians and you'll find out that these folks came from the other side of the railroad tracks, didn't they? I mean, we're talking about fornicators and adulterers and idolaters, homosexuals and thieves and covetous, drunkards, extortioners, revilers. And Paul said, and such were some of you. Well, what's the difference, Paul? You were washed, you were sanctified, justified. That's the difference the Lord can make in your life. So, there is a clarification about His work. But then there is a consideration. Listen now to what Jesus said. Look at verse 13. Jesus is directing this to these religious snobs. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not, call, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. First there's a quotation. He goes back to the book of Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. God is not saying under that old dispensation, the, the law of Moses, that He didn't require sacrifices. 
But what he wanted was sacrifice, but also a merciful, kind, gracious, compassionate spirit. You remember in Matthew 23 when Jesus directed that series of woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you tithe mint, anise, and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He said, these you ought to have done and not left the other undone. God's saying, look, you have neglected things like mercy and justice. That's the problem here. Again, go back and reread what the text says in Luke 18 about the parable that Jesus told the Pharisee and the publican. He directed that at those who perceived or considered themselves to be righteous by themselves, and then he says, and despised others. That's it right there. If these folks had only some compassion and kindness, you know, that's what the gospel's all about. Sharing a message with people that are hurt by sin, that need help to get out of a life of sin, and what Jesus was saying to those in this household is, I can offer you a better way of life. And let me tell you what, 2,000 years later, the Lord still offers a better life, doesn't He? You can have a better life. Your life might be in shambles right now. Your life might be broken. You're hurting. You wonder how you can put all the pieces back together again. I want you to know something. Jesus can take a life that's been marred by sin, broken. And let me tell you what, He can give you a better life. He can give you some hope. Hope when things may seem hopeless. Help when it seems as if life is without help. So what would you need to do to become one of His disciples? First, you've got to believe that He is who He claimed to be, the divine Son of God. That He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter affirmed in Matthew 16. To repent of all of your sins. To walk away from a life of sin as Paul did in the long ago. And then to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Let me tell you, you can leave here cleansed of every sin. The stain of sin, the shame of sin. You can walk away from here today a new creation in Christ. You might have come through those doors a sinner, but you can leave a saint. If you're here today, and let's just say you're not faithful to God, and because you're not faithful to God, you're not in fellowship with Him. You need to be restored. David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You can enjoy the joy of salvation once again. John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come today as we stand and sing?